We have two texts before us today, Matthew 18, um, beginning in verse 15, and then 1 Corinthians 5. Our primary text will be 1 Corinthians 5, but Matthew 18 will be a help to us. Um, Typically, it is the case that we reserve our didactic and topical sermons for the afternoon, but as we have a pronouncement of excommunication this morning, after the service, it seemed good to preach a sermon on what church censures are and especially what excommunication is, uh, which is what we will do today. So this sermon will cover many points uh, because they're all necessary for us to understand. So Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15 to verse 20. Let us hear now the word of God. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, Thou hast gained thy brother, but if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, And whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in the heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Amen. Let us turn to 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. I'll read the entirety of that text. It is... Reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with the idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world." But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. With such an one, no, not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within. Put them that are without, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. May God bless the solemn reading of his word. Let's pray for a blessing on the preaching. Lord our God, thou hast said, 
to preach all the counsel of God. And there is much in the counsel of God that man's flesh despises and that is difficult to us. And so, Father, we pray that the Spirit of the Lord would fall upon the minister now, that he would preach faithfully to difficult texts such as this, and that it would be done with a sense of sobriety and solemnity, that the people of God may understand the will and the mind of Christ in these matters, that they may understand their whole duty to the Lord, that if any are are running away from the Lord, that they may fear and return to the Lord here. And any here who have not known Christ as a great king, may they this day turn to the living God in faith and sincerity. So we pray for the congregation now, that by this preaching, Father, that Christ would be magnified. So we pray, Father, sanctify them by thy truth, for thy word is truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Christian church is the kingdom of God on the earth. And it is therefore meant to be a holy and heavenly society. Its banner is holiness unto the Lord. So what is then to be done in view of that when members of this society behave as unbelievers? What is to be done? Or even as with the man here in 1 Corinthians 5, whom Paul says is worse, acting worse than an unbeliever. What is to be done? Has Christ, we might even ask, anticipated such a case? And has Christ expressed his will for us in the word of God? And of course, Christ has given both the rule and the expectation for his church in such a case. In Matthew 18, he has given to us the institution of church censures, church censures, by which wicked men and women may even be purged from his church if they will not repent. And you are told to treat such as heathen, as unbelievers, as publicans, as tax collectors of the day. He does this to keep his church from falling into a mockery of itself and a parody of his own design. You know, the Lord said to Judah before the hammer fell, Israel was holiness unto the Lord. Now, there are two things there I was pondering as to our own congregation. What a thing it would be, firstly, if the Lord Jesus Christ would have ever said to us, Dallas RPC was never holiness unto the Lord. But second, if a time would ever come when the Lord would say of us, Dallas RPC was, past tense, holiness unto the Lord. You remember that the reason that the book of Jeremiah starts in this way is because the Lord was going to punish his people with exile for their sin. And so it is for the sake of the prevention of the wrath of God breaking out on a congregation that Jesus Christ has given us censures to purge the wicked person from among us, as you have heard, via excommunication. And so our theme today is broader than excommunication, but it is focused on excommunication. Our theme being Christ's censures, particularly that of excommunication. So this is going to be a longer sermon because I have to deal with censure in general, as well as excommunication in particular. And we'll consider this theme under three heads on your bulletin. The first is the design of censure. The second is the highest censure. And third is the hope 
of censure. Our first heading, the design of censure. Let's first begin by understanding the nature of the church and the nature of its governance. The church, as I've said, is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth. It is a holy society. It is set apart for God. It is unlike any other society in the earth. It is not of this world, as Jesus has said. It is heavenly. It is called the kingdom of heaven on the earth. This is a society utterly distinct and separated from all other societies on the earth. And Christ, as king and head of the church, has appointed a government for it, which is distinct from the governments of this world, uh, the civil magistrate. It is distinct from our magistrates, boys and girls. It's distinct from the federal government, the local government, and so on. And in the church's government, Christ has appointed these three officers, laws, and censures, by which he tends to his sheep and keeps them from going astray. He keeps them on the straight and narrow path, as you'll hear tonight in Psalm 119, that path that leads to heaven. He keeps his people on the straight and narrow, that they do not leave it and depart from the way that is good. Now, his censures, and that's what we're focusing on primarily, are judicial sentences by which an ecclesiastical court can pass a solemn judgment uh, from beginning from admonishments to suspending a member from the Lord's Supper for a season to most grievously of all, excommunicating, casting a member out of the church, visible. Now these censures are administered according to the law of God and uh, by the church's officers. They're not arbitrary in no way. They are founded and rooted in the word of God. As you'll hear, not everything that displeases elders of a church are liable to censure. But to certain church officers, Christ has given power to exercise what are known as the keys of the kingdom. Uh, for instance, in Matthew sixteen nineteen, Christ promised to Peter, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, what are the nature of these keys? I don't know if you've ever considered what these keys might be. They, uh, I think a lot of people gloss right over it. Well, there are several keys in the scripture entrusted to church officers. Um, that's intimated by the fact that Jesus said keys being plural. For instance, Christ speaks of the key of knowledge in Luke 11.52. And in this, ministers are given the authority to preach the word, but all elders have the authority to come together in synods and presbyteries to determine doctrinal controversies. You notice this in the church universal. We had the, the great ecumenical councils. This is what they use, the, the key of knowledge to determine things like the hypostatic union, to determine the Chalcedonian formula, and so on. The councils are given uh, this key of knowledge by which to determine doctrinal controversies. But the key, and this is shared among all the elders of the church, but the key that we are interested in is what has been called the key of discipline. This sacred key, Jesus says, reflects heavenly Realities when it is exercised biblically. 
For when the key of discipline is exercised, as you have heard, Christ said, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. First, what is meant by binding and loosing? Well, binding is the retaining of men's sins, shutting them out of the kingdom of heaven. Loosing is the remitting of men's sins, admitting them into the kingdom of heaven. That interpretation is plain if you look to, for instance, John 20 and verse 23. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. It's almost poetic, remitting and retaining, loosing and binding. So plainly said, this key is the power to admit a penitent sinner into the church. And this key is the power to shut out the impenitent sinner from the church. And that's the power that is entrusted to the church. It's a real key, and it does reflect, children, listen to this well, heavenly realities. This is not just some bureaucracy in the church. This is not some administrative power. It is glorious and beautiful when a key is used to loose. And we rejoice greatly whenever we've seen somebody make a profession of faith and the elders admit them to the church. As though one who was once dead is now alive. But it is quite solemn and sad when the the key is used to bind. And we mourn tremendously as though one is now dead, as we do today. Well, who is the key given to? Who are such keys given to? They're not given to the civil magistrate. They don't have the keys of the kingdom. The civil magistrate, children, you remember this well from Romans 13, they bear not a key but the sword, don't they? They punish evildoers and reward what uh, those that do well in the civil sphere. But they have no power to admit anyone into the kingdom of heaven. They have no power to shut them out either from the kingdom of heaven. Now, Historically, remember, this has been the tension between the Anglicans and the Presbyterians. Anglicans have the king as the head of the church. But the Bible is clear. Christ is the king and head of the church. And he has given no power to the civil magistrate to punish uh, those who are inside the church for ecclesiastical uh, problems. Now, they can you go and you murder someone, they have every power to use the sword against you. We will have ecclesiastical power if you don't repent in order to potentially excommunicate you. But those two powers are distinct. I don't have the power of the sword. The elders are not going to uh, execute or uh, punish physically anybody. But we do have the power, which is a more dread power, really, by Christ's power to excommunicate, if you think of it. You remember, as Presbyterians have uh, resisted um, uh, civil rulers, you remember Melville said to King James, Sir, ye are God's silly vassal. There are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, the head of the commonwealth, and there is Christ, Jesus, the king of the church, whose subject James the sixth is, and of whose kingdom he is not a king, not a lord, not a head, but a member. So these two realms, they don't mix in terms of the king, the president, Congress has no power in the church. And this is a doctrine, as you have seen, tyranny by the government that has to be reclaimed. And uh, it has often been lost today in government intrusion. On the other hand, you have the papists who believe that Jesus gave uh, the keys to Peter as a proto-pope. 
But that cannot be because the keys are given to the elders of the church as a plurality. For instance, we read in Matthew 18, 18, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now in that text, Christ is speaking to his apostles as elders. And you'll notice it's very plain in the authorized version, of course, he uses the plural, doesn't he? Ye, you. In Matthew 16, he says thee to a singular person, the thee is singular. But in Matthew 18, he says you to the elders of the church, you as plural. And so the elders of the church together are given the keys of the kingdom, not just the pastor of the church, not individual elders of the church, but the elders together as a court of Christ's house. I don't have the power to unilaterally excommunicate anyone. That's made even more plain in Matthew 18.20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. That context is specifically in terms of church discipline, as you well know. So two or three elders, so a plurality of elders gathered together as a church court. What does Christ promise? I am there in your midst. But we must know what kind of authority Christ blesses. For instance, when wicked men, wicked elders get together and exercise authority in an unbiblical way, does Christ bless their decisions? The answer is no. When they cast out somebody just because they don't like the person, will Christ bless their decisions? The answer is no. Elders only possess, we've talked about this before, what is called ministerial authority not magisterial authority. In other words, what elders do is they minister the word of God. They take this word and they minister it to you. They do not legislate whatever they wish. They can't invent rules like the Pharisees did and then bind you to them and say, because you're not following man-made rules, we can cast you out of the church. That would be not to be helpers of your faith and joy. That would make elders lords over your conscience which they cannot be, and Christ will never bless such authority. This is in distinction, of course, between Rome's views on authority and the Reformed Church. In essence, Rome would say, whatever the Pope declares, Christ declares. Now, children, think of how blasphemous that thought is, that whatever the Pope says, Christ is bound to do. Who is in control? That's blasphemy. It is to say a mere man can tell Christ what he must do. And that's just another blasphemy from that man of sin. But the reformers said what elders do, and this is the important direction, they confirm what Christ has already done. It's confirmatory that we, the elders of the church, by seeking him in the word of God, may know his will out of the word of God and by the Holy Spirit. We can measure any member of the church and their walk with the Lord according to what thus saith the Lord and say and declare, not that we have declared in our own power and our own authority, but by Christ, you are walking contrary to the work of God and a word of God and you are impenitent. And so we are simply declaring what Christ himself has declared in heaven. And we can say whether one by their repentance and faith is to be admitted into the church by a profession of Christ or be cast out of it because of gross unrepentant sin. But where the word of God is silent, we elders must be too. However, when they are diligent 
to seek the mind of Christ in the word of God and in prayer, meeting together as a court of Christ's house, Jesus says their sentence reflects heavenly realities. So that is a dreadful thing. You know, the ministerial authority of the elders is a true authority when it is exercised by the word. In Hebrews thirteen seventeen. what do you read? Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. Now, let me just remind you, you know, submission to elders, um, even their ministerial authority can often seem uh, to you, it's something your flesh despises. I understand that. The Word of God teaches it. But look at the positive nature of it, children of God, in Hebrews 13. You know, the, the child of God is to say, I want elders watching over my soul. Elders who know me, who are not distant from me, who walk with me. Because every child of God knows somewhere in my heart I am prone to wander. I am prone to go astray. And it, they are meant to be helpers for my joy. These men are meant to be under shepherds under Christ, the chief shepherd and bishop of my soul, 1 Peter 3 and 5. And so we are to be encouraged that Christ has set these governments in place, that there are men he has given to us as officers. Well, that leads us to consider who is liable to church censure them. Our text makes it plain in verses 12 and 13. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within. But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore put away from amongst yourselves that wicked person. So church censures only apply to those who are within the church, not those that are outside of it. Um, We elders couldn't get together and decide that we were going to go and excommunicate a public figure that is outside of the church. It only applies to those admitted to the church by the elders of the church and by a profession of faith. Only those, um, especially in this time in which there is great division in the visible church, only those under the jurisdiction of a denomination's elders can excommunicate one who is under that jurisdiction. However, such censures apply to a member standing in the entire church. The censure that is passed must be respected by every branch of the visible church. Uh, If you come here and your elders, who are truly elders in, in a branch of Christ's church, have censured you, we are bound by Christ to respect that censure. Because there is one church ultimately of Jesus Christ. Now, if we investigate and find it was unjust, well, then there's another story. But people are not meant to hide from censure. The whole church is supposed to be bound arm in arm to say that gross, notorious sinners, whether they be in Corinth or in Dallas, should not have purchase to go and hide from what Christ has declared. Christ has bound and Christ has loosed, and we are to recognize what he has done universally. Now, what is censurable by the church? As I said, not everything that displeases elders is censurable. For clarity, I will summarize what our book of discipline summarizes. It says there are three kinds. Offenses which require discipline are three kinds. First, heresy. Second, disregard or violation of the moral law. And third, contempt for the courts of the church. And let me break those down for you scripturally. 
But I think this is a very helpful way to understand what requires church censures. And these are almost intuitive, I think, if you think about them. But they do reflect the mind of God. Because all three of these do violence to the church as a holy and heavenly society. First, heresies, they distress her. And they teach damnable and blasphemous things about God. They lead souls astray. Many drink in the poison of heretics and go away from the Lord. Titus 3.10 A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject. What about the moral law? Being grossly and publicly violated. That's to be purged because a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. It spreads in a congregation. Verses 6 and 7 Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. It's a cancer to have moral law violations scandalous and public. I think we intuitively understand that. Think about parenting. Do you want your child observing immorality and thinking that is okay for a Christian person? Open fornicators, able to be in the church. No problem. You can live like that and be a Christian. Absolutely not. What will happen is it'll spread like leaven through the congregation. It must be purged. But worse, and this is where our heart ought to be, brethren, such immorality causes reproach to fall on Christ himself. Romans 2, 23 and 24, Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you as it is written. When Christians live as hypocrites, Christ is blasphemed, Christ is mocked, Christ is slandered publicly, and we ought all say, God forbid, Have you not seen how much reproach is sent towards our Savior when public officials or even ministers who claim to be Christians are found in scandal, not dealt with? The cause of Christ suffers. But how different would it be, brethren, if such public officials who are under the charge of the church or ministers who claim to be Christians found in scandal were publicly rebuked and even, if necessary, be excommunicated? There would be no charge of hypocrisy. And people would at least have to admit whether they believe the word of God or not. At least those people truly believe what they say they believe. And Christ is no minister of sin. Thirdly, contempt for the courts of Christ shows contempt for Christ's own authority. For as you've seen in Matthew 18, he is the one who has instituted them. Certainly, The creed of Christian society can in no way be the theme of the book of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's not the standard of the Christian church. But I think we also ought to know, we've seen those are the three areas of discipline, uh, things that can be censured. What's the aim of church censure? Is it a kind of punitive only measure that makes men come and grovel before the elders. Is that what Christ has in view? Absolutely not. From the Bible, you can discover five purposes for church censure. And the first is where we put our hopes in, the reclaiming and gaining of the offender. We don't do it in hopes 
that uh, an offender will be lost forever. Our hope is through such a solemn pronouncement, they will be reclaimed. In verse 5, the aim is that by casting the man out and handing him over to Satan, he might ultimately be saved in the day of Christ. That was the apostle's hope. Second, for deterring others from like offenses. 1 Timothy 5.20 Them that sin, rebuke, not just rebuke, but rebuke before all. Why? That others also may fear. There's a sense in which uh, an erring member who errs so grievously must be rebuked in front of all so that all of us may fear and grow in the fear of God. Third, for purging out that leaven which might infect the whole lump. We already considered that, verses 6 and 7. Sin spreads like leaven. Christ wants a church that will be purged of it. Fourth, for vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel. Um, We've talked about this as well. Christ's honor is at stake, Romans chapter 2. But also, we, we, we proclaim the gospel is not just the salvation of a soul from hell, but it is uh, making a man a new creation. And what a thing it would be to say that the gospel has no power to change the heart. So we vindicate the gospel itself. Fifth, for preventing the wrath of God from justly falling on the church. Now, on Wednesday nights, we've been in the, the seven churches of the Revelation. And you have seen candlesticks that have been threatened because of immorality in a church. And so Christ will remove lampstick, lampstands, candlesticks. You think about how many churches have preached the gospel in their history. You think of the great um, uh, New England churches, whether Congregational, Presbyterian, or Baptist, that once preached the word of life. And are now nothing more than, what can you call them but synagogues of Satan? Preaching social gospels, preaching homosexuality is no vice but virtue, who have become Unitarians. Where did it begin? It began because there wasn't an upholding of church discipline. Well, sad to say on that point, church discipline is not often followed. It is too often neglected by the church today. Yet, as you well know from church history, it was seen as one of the three marks of of the church, in addition to the proper um, handling of the word of God in the sacraments. But without biblical discipline, churches degenerate. You've likely seen this. Many of you have been part of churches that have degenerated. You think of churches where even ministers, even the ministers, have disgraced themselves in adultery or some scandalous sin, and they continue to preach. Notorious fornicators holding hands in the pews, heretics espousing unorthodox and damnable doctrines in congregations, going into homes and teaching these things, unguarded, spreading poison, and then they all have the temerity to take communion together. This makes a mockery of Christ, and it causes the wrath of God to be kindled, and the word... Ichabod is written on so many of these churches. They are whitewashed tombs. They may look beautiful and have the most splendid buildings, but Christ said there's nothing but death inside. A candlestick snuffed by the Lord. That said, even as we consider these solemn things, we want to remember 
that even in church censure, courts are not infallible. Even as the elders have passed sentences, they do err at times. But let me say, if they are wrong, let it be proven by the word of God. And in biblical church government, this is a great comfort. Rulings can be appealed to broader courts. There are presbyteries and there are synods Christ has instituted for this purpose. Unjust rulings can be appealed. Presbyteries in Acts 15, they serve as a court of review and synod as a court of appeal, even from presbytery. But those judgments that are in accord with the word of God are true judgments of Christ himself. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let us not forget that, and let us respect that, beloved. Church is not a game, friends. This isn't something to just while away your time for a few hours on the Lord's day. There are heavenly realities that are set before us. Jesus Christ, every Lord's day, sets heaven and hell before you. He says, I have set life and death before you. Choose life. This is not a game. These are heavenly realities that we come before. Church membership is solemn. Christ is in church courts. It is the height of unbelief to think none of this matters. That coming and signing the membership covenant, coming and pledging yourself to Christ one day, children, is just a take it or leave it kind of proposition. No, heaven and hell are set before you. Always remember that. And may elders not forget that either. They are not bureaucrats. They're dealing with souls solemnly. So with that, to help us understand church government and censure, let's consider our second head, which is the highest censure. Um, At the end of this heading, I will put before you that there are several levels of church discipline, the highest of which is excommunication. But let us first ask, what does it mean to be excommunicated? Well, it means, as I've already intimated, it means to be cast out of not just this church, but the universal church of Jesus Christ. If one is, you think of it, a communicant by admission to the church by the church's elders, one is, and this is the natural language, excommunicated by elders of the church on the other side. This is that loosing and binding power that Christ gives. And those that are excommunicated, and here is the declaration, they are declared to be as an unbeliever. Clear in Matthew eighteen seventeen. but if you neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican, meaning tax collector. Or as in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 5, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. They are put away. They are no longer associated with the Christian society. They are cast out of the society that is the kingdom of God. The one that is excommunicated can no longer be treated as a Christian person. They are treated as though they are unconverted, as an unbeliever in every way, because that is actually how they have been behaving according to the word of God. And so it's fine. You act as an unbeliever. You refuse to repent of your sin. You are declared by Christ's own authority. You are a heathen. doesn't matter what you say. Your conduct does not comport with the Christian. That is what Titus 1.16 says. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him 
being abominable and disobedient. Those who profess to know God, but their works betray them. What will happen? They will be stripped from the membership role of the church. They lose all rights and privileges of the visible church. They are barred from enjoying the sacraments. Not just the Lord's Supper, but their children too, unless their spouse be a believer, will not be allowed to be baptized. What a solemn thing that is. Those privileges solely belong to members of the visible church. 1 Corinthians 7 is very clear. But then if these are cast out of the church, what is their spiritual standing? Simply put, they are, as it were, returned to Satan. They are returned to Satan and they are no longer part of the kingdom of God. They are part of Satan's kingdom once again. Verse 5, deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And you know, there is solemnly an example of this in the scripture itself, 1 Timothy 1.20, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan. Why? That they may learn not to blaspheme. In a way, it's the ultimate correction, isn't it? If he will not listen to the elders of the church, the congregation even that has pleaded with Christ's love, maybe he needs to go to Satan that they will learn not to blaspheme. Now I want to ask, children of God, this is a good test for you where you stand. Do these things strike horror in you at the very thought that this would be you, that this could be you, to be put out of the church and declared as a heathen person, to be told you are shut out of the tokens of the signs and seals of God's love, such as the sacrament, to say, elders, no longer watch over your soul, no longer are under, you're no longer under the government of Christ, but now you are under the government of Satan in such a place that there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. It's dreadful, friends. It ought to be. I say, imagine it for yourself. And if you are backslidden from the Lord, This is where backsliding leads unless you repent of your sin. So turn away lest you find yourself in Satan's clutches. Beloved, get off the dreadful path that leads here. An excommunication, like other church censures, is a public affair. You know, when members join the church, right, it is a public thing. We have them up here and they make their vows before God and it is a time of great, tremendous joy, especially when we see a conversion. But on the other side, excommunication is also public as well because just as it is a public affair that these now follow Christ, it's a public affair to say this one who once publicly was associated with the Lord is now cast out as a heathen. And the church must be warned that this person is no longer a brother or a sister, but is a heathen. And also church courts do it publicly because church courts don't act in secret. They are public courts so that you may know what transpires. But what a thing it is that the world may know that, especially the church may know, that this one is no longer a brother. Solemn thing. And so we see in verse 4, it is to be solemnly pronounced, as it will be after the sermon. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together. 
and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it'll be as the moderator of the session by Christ's authority that I will make the excommunication pronouncement as all of us are gathered together after the benediction with Christ's own power, his own authority before you all. Now the question often arises, how do we treat one that is excommunicated? And the answer is simply this, you treat them as one who is lost. You treat them as one who is lost. Verse 2 says to mourn them. You are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. We mourn that the man has to be taken away. And in verse 11, we read, we are not to enjoy fellowship with them. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one, know not to eat. Once they were called brother or sister, now no longer. And we don't even eat with them. We don't fellowship with them. We don't speak to them other than for this word, a pleading to them to turn to the Lord. Just as we do not, and I trust children, you do not enjoy familiar fellowship with unbelievers, you are not to enjoy familiar fellowship with the excommunicated. They have been handed over to Satan. They're his. They're not Christ's, at least not yet. And what they need to hear from us is the gospel. If you run into this man that is called, that was called a brother who has been excommunicated, you need to inform him that he needs Christ, that he needs repentance and he needs faith. He needs repentance of his sin and he needs to be converted. That is our conversation with such a man. Yes, you can invite such a man to come and attend our congregation, but unbelievers come and attend our congregation as well. Why? That they may be converted in the hearing of the gospel. In other words, these are to be evangelized, not fellowshiped with. And that responsibility falls unto the whole congregation, not just the elders. Later, I will consider with you 2 Corinthians 2, which is really wonderfully the demonstration of what happened to this man in 1 Corinthians 5. But in that text, the apostle says, sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. Meaning that the church inflicts this punishment on the former brother. Now, while other church censures, which we will consider, are not punitive, excommunication is. It's a punishment inflicted by the whole body of Christ as though it is it has repelled a cancer. And the only way for that cancer to come back in is for it to be turned to the Lord so it is no longer cancerous. And we are all to reflect Christ's mind on the matter, not to treat this former brother as a Christian. Now on that, I want to clear up a matter concerning excommunication because at our synod meeting last meet, even last uh, this last year in the summer, even some elders seemed unclear on what it is. In excommunication, the church is in no way declaring that a man is reprobate, that he is uh, not one of God's elect. Those are the secret things that belong to God. We are not decreeing such a thing. What we are declaring is that such a person, at least at this point, has no right or claim to Christ that he or she is not uh, to claim they are a Christian because they are unrepentant of gross sins and they are presently and de- uh, denying and mocking Christ by their conduct. 
No matter what they say with their mouth, they are headed towards those dreadful words that Christ may speak to them one day. Depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. I'll return to that truth in our final heading. So we're not to treat them as a Christian, though, unless they're restored later on. Now, one area where people are confused is when a natural relation exists between you and the excommunicated. Um, excommunication does not and never does sever natural relations. That relationship um, still exists. For instance, if a spouse of yours is excommunicated, just as you heard in the sermon on divorce, the marriage is not dissolved if the excommunicated consents to stay in the marriage and not depart from you. You still maintain marital relations. You still even maintain the marital bed. That is clear again from 1 Corinthians 7. If a dependent child who was a communicant member is excommunicated, you don't cast them out of your house. They are treated as an unbelieving child again, and you maintain natural relations. The prohibition, because people get confused on this prohibition against eating with them, it doesn't apply to natural relations. Natural affinity takes precedent over that. I would even say, if they're under the same roof, you have to bring them into family worship still, that they may hear the word of God and turn back to the Lord. You know, this has happened more and more. What if you are an adult and your parents are excommunicated? What do you do? Well, you still owe them honor as per the fifth commandment, but they're not to be treated as believers anymore. And this is hard. I understand that. But they're not believers anymore. And that's not, sad to say, a hypothetical problem in the church. Now you're seeing so many, I'm just using divorce because it came up in a sermon recently. You're seeing so many who when the children are gone, uh, husband and wife will divorce each other unjustly, not according to the word of God. And a church may well have to excommunicate them. And now you are put in a difficult position, having to say, no, mother, father, you are as unbelievers now because of your sin. And what a hard thing that is. However, they are still your mother and your father, and you owe them honor according to the fifth commandment. Perhaps the most succinct explanation of our responsibility was in the first book of discipline. And let me read it to you, and you can look it up later just for more help. After which sentence, this is of excommunication, may no person, and listen to this, his wife and family only accepted, have any kind of conversation with him, be it in eating and drinking, buying and selling, yea, in saluting or talking with him, except that it be at the commandment or license of uh, the ministry for his conversion, that he by such means confounded, seeing himself abhorred of the faithful and godly, may have occasion to repent and be so saved. The sentence of his excommunication must be published universally throughout the realm, lest that any man should pretend ignorance. End quote. So this is godly counsel from our forefathers. I think it is very good for us to remember. Now, as we think on excommunication, it is hardly the first censure elders use, usually. When sin, as you know that this man, 18 months have gone by from the first um, admonition given to him. Uh, almost 18 months. When sins that are censurable are first detected, elders usually begin with what is called an official admonition or rebuke. Uh, such a censure exists, it's clear, in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, 
And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So there is always, this is a shepherding activity. You don't run to cast somebody out of the church. First you say, brother, sister, your conduct is worthy of formal admonition. You must repent. You know, the goal in all of this is repentance. If they repent at this point, we say, praise God, it must go no further. But then, if not repenting, the elders can suspend them from the Lord's Supper for a season. And that is meant to grab our attention. You know, when you see, especially as biblically, you celebrate the supper with the table and the congregation, those who commune come to it. What a thing it is to see uh, the communicants go up to the table and you are to stay there at your seat. It's a picture for you to grab your attention that I'm being barred from the Lord's table. And what that means is I am on that road to being cast out of the church entirely. And it is meant to grab you that you would repent as you see a preview. And so sometimes it was called lesser excommunication. But it is a preview of greater excommunication if I do not repent of my sin. And if that doesn't work, as it hadn't in this man, then you move to greater excommunication, a full excommunication as we have before us. And it's worth noting and saying again, beloved, the church never excommunicates those that are repentant. That's not the goal. The goal is repentance. But at every stop up to excommunication, the aim is restoration. Well, that takes us then to our third and final heading the hope of censure. So excommunication is punitive. Casting out is their punishment. So that also, because we are, let me just go back to one thing before I come here. We are so easily deceived in our flesh, beloved. We always think we have a righteous cause. I am right. I was right to leave my wife. She was such a nag or ridiculous things like that. And what you need is the entire church as a body saying, no, you are wrong. It's not just your elders, it is all of us, which is why excommunication has this punitive nature of you do not talk to them unless to counsel them to repent. Every man does what is right in his own eyes, naturally. However, the hope of censure is that this punishment may be reversed. Verse 5 says, Deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? That the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. This is the aim. We hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And what that means is the mortification of their flesh. That their sin would be erased. Just as uh, Paul said, that those two men would learn not to blaspheme. He hands them over to Satan. It's a stunning thing that often the Lord uses Satan to purge sin that we have embraced. You know, you consider the parable of the prodigal son. We considered it a little bit on Wednesday night. You know, he leaves his father's blessed home. He wastes away all that he was given. He lives notoriously in notorious sin. He joins himself to a cruel master, right, in a cruel land. A picture of what Satan, being in Satan's kingdom, is cruelty. No one there took pity on him. He recognizes it because there is no pity in Satan's kingdom. He wastes away and is tempted to eat the food of pigs. What does the Lord do? In all of that, his spirit is awoken. The Lord awakens him to his senses, the text says, and in repentance he trudges back mournfully to his father's house. 
And that's what we want. That kind of thing. Mournful that the man had played the part of a fool and had loved sin over his father. And that's what you hope for in excommunication is what you pray for. That they would remember that Christ's place is a place of blessedness. That in the kingdom there were people praying day and night for me. That men and women fasted for me. That they loved me because they loved Christ and it was Christ's love shown to me through them. These are things that the man that was excommunicated can say and can remember if the Lord opens his heart. And that's what you hope for. That they might repent in a way that the admonition of church elders could never have had them repent so that their spirit may be saved, as Paul says. And what do we do when a person repents and returns to the church? We forgive them. We forgive them. We put them back on the path towards communicant membership. They are to manifest the fruit of repentance as they are observed. But we don't prescribe carnal punishments, floggings, and things of that sort. You know, you might say that that's funny, but you know the papacy had done things like that, making men literally grovel before the Pope before they could be restored. They must ask for forgiveness, and the congregation is bound to forgive them. And then we bless God and we praise God that this one who was once dead is now alive. One who was lost is now found by the good shepherd. We are to be merry and rejoice. So we are to go with hope, even with such a dread censure. You know, the apostle's prayer that the man's spirit may be saved was actually heard and answered. You can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, if you would, and I will read for you that text. 1 through 11. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. So this is the second epistle, right? For I make you sorry. Who is he then that maketh me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have loved more abundantly unto you. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment, which was inflicted of many. So this is the man from the first epistle. So that contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that ye would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave it, I, I it in the person of Christ. Here's Satan again. Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. We cast him out to Satan. The man repents, and we forgive freely and fully, lest Satan get a foothold in the congregation. It's a very interesting thing, isn't it? But here is the hope of any man who is excommunicated, that he might come back to the Lord. And we are to have an earnest desire and an earnest longing. And what a marvelous providence it is that these things are recorded in the word of God for us, beloved. So friends, some people think to exercise excommunication is ungracious. No, that is backwards. 
it would be ungracious to withhold it from those to whom it is due. Sometimes elders just simply erase persons from church roles, not wanting to deal with these difficult matters as though that is more kind and less straining on the congregation. But that is a terrible thing to keep a sinner deluded as to their state where they can go and say, I am a Christian, but live as a heathen because let not the excommunication be a surprise to them. Because if they don't repent, they're going to get the shock of their life, shock of eternal life, when they hear, depart from me, ye that work iniquity, on that day when the Lord rejects them. Better they hear the judgment of Christ today than on that day. And that's the whole point, so that they might awake to their dread condition and return to the Lord. And let me just say this. What an awful, awful thing it is to elders who do not do this work. In Ezekiel 33, you know it well when I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. He says to elders, if thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Church is not a game, friends. These are things the Lord promises, and it's the height and stench of unbelief to not believe the Lord at his word. So may the Lord be pleased to use this ordinance to reclaim the man delivered to Satan for the mortification of his pride and his sin, his obstinacy, that he might be restored to the everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But in any case, may every just excommunication be to the glory of God. For he has ordained it, and not we ourselves. Amen. Let us arise for prayer, if able. O Lord our God, a great and terrible weight is placed upon us. A great mourning, a great sorrow. And yet we have heard even this past Wednesday night Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. May our comfort be found in knowing this is the will of God for us. And may our comfort be found that this is to the glory of Jesus Christ. And may our comfort be found in knowing the glory of Christ, and that is paramount, and that this may even be used to the reclamation of a man that we once embraced as a brother. May you, Father, use this ordinance in the rest of our lives to keep us on the the good and narrow way, that leads to eternal life, that we would follow our Lord Jesus Christ as obedient little lambs, following after him, knowing that his rod and staff are meant to comfort us. And may we go knowing that his goodness and mercy follows us all the days of our life. And may we be given the faith to behold these things. And may you bless the, such churches in this day that would do, uh, that would be faithful to the word in this point. And may all churches be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ so that no hypocrisy may be detected and that also our churches may be kept from the leaven of sin being spread amongst us. We ask these things now for the glory of Christ in his name. Amen.